in the country where uh, you're underwater, places in the country where you're under snow, places in the country where the weather's absolutely gorgeous. Wherever you're listening to us right now, we appreciate it. Indeed. The Armstrong and Getty Show, trying to present a uh, slightly different brand of talk radio. Mm-hmm. For better or worse. Mm. Depends on the day, really. So, uh, Como TV, Seattle. One of the great cities of America. Indeed. Like uh, many great cities these days, uh, a troubled city. But Como TV has gone against the grain. They've produced a documentary entitled Seattle is Dying. And we're going to play you a few clips uh, from it and, and discuss. I remember going to Seattle the first time... 15 years ago, maybe, and thinking, why doesn't everybody live here? Right. This is fantastic. Bit of a lack of sunshine, some might answer, but it's an absolutely wonderful city, or was. But the point of this uh, documentary is that, and we've talked about this for a long time, and anybody who lives particularly in a, a, a bigger metro area in a blue state, or, well, you know, most big metro cities are blue areas, even within red states. You understand the idea of when what I often describe as utopian, we all should love each other policies run up against the hard realities of human nature. The great liberal bastion of Berkeley, California, for instance, where, you know, you're practically a hero for being a bum. So soft were the policies on homeless That's folks. a very good way to put it. I've, right. I've been in city council meetings where it. It definitely feels like that's the vibe. Right. They're a hero. You're a bad person. Right. For having a job or having a business or paying your taxes or whatever. They've run up against the reality so hard that even berserkly California has said, all right, you got to get off business doorsteps. You can't be pooping on the street. You can't camp here. This is insane. You can't frighten people. Right. Right. Yeah. But this is a brilliantly done documentary, and we're going to play you a handful of clips. Uh, go ahead, Sean, number one. Let me ask you something. What if Seattle is dying and we don't even know it? This story is about a seething, simmering anger that is now boiling over into outrage. It is about people who have felt compassion, yes, but who no longer feel safe, no longer feel like they are heard, no longer feel protected. It is about lost souls who wander our streets, untethered to home or family or reality, chasing a drug which in turn chases them. It is about the damage they inflict on themselves to be sure, but also on the fabric of this place where we live. This story is about a beautiful jewel that has been violated and a crisis of faith amongst a generation of Seattleites falling out of love with their home. Wow, a lot of that sounds like what I said at a city council meeting for my own town, where I said, is this a better place to live now than it was 20 years ago or worse? Who could possibly say it's better right? or or, or, or not getting worse? And people like you are accused of having a lack of compassion. Here is a woman, a frequent victim of crime, who was seeking uh, some, well, redress of her grievances in front of the Seattle City Council. There has evolved a profound disconnect, and rarely has it been more vividly laid out than in this exchange. If property crime is committed, violence is committed, you need to call 911, and the police... You've lost all credibility when you say... You said two words. You said, call 911. 
Do you understand that the police have told us to vote you all out so that they can do their jobs? And you're telling us to call 911? You're smiling. You think it's funny? You think it's funny the way we're living? The idea that if policies surround you, the result of the policies are being surrounded by lawlessness, criminality, drug abuse, needles, parks you can't go to with your kids, that, look, call the police, as opposed to changing the governance. It's, it's, it's obscene. It's terrible. My wife, in our situation, called the police as recently as it was like a month ago now, I guess, and the police say we can't do anything. There's nothing we can do. If you have to rely... Threatening children. This guy was threatening children. We just we can't do anything. Right. Current laws, statutes, nothing happened. Right. You've got to appeal to an armed representative of the government to go to a park, and you on the city council are suggesting that's okay. Call that armed government official, and he'll come with you. Really? And the citizens are getting whipsawed. The, the, the government people are telling them to call the cops. The cops are telling them to go to the, the government people. And... and we, co- Something has to be done. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll, I understand what the cops are saying. There needs to be enough people on your side of this issue showing up to city council meetings saying, we're not putting up with this anymore to move it that direction. Because the other thing the cops are saying is, if I do what you want me to do, which is plainly the right thing to do, I will be out of my job. Right. And I will be replaced by a police chief who won't do what you want me to do. One of the frustrating, and I've been involved in this for the first time in my life, which is nothing to be proud of, actually been involved in, you know, the making of policies or or, or getting involved in, in movements and that sort of stuff. It's frustrating that democracy is so slow. It's really, really slow. It takes a long time for anger, will, energy, whatever to build up around something to where you get enough people to uh, to change things. Mm-hmm. And that can be very frustrating. Yep. Next clip, please. Let's look for a moment at property crimes for the 20 biggest cities in the country. New York City in 2017 had 1,448 property crimes per 100,000 residents. Los Angeles was just over 2,500. Chicago, 3,263. And look at Seattle, 5,258. The only major city with a worse number is San Francisco, which is dealing with the same problems for the same reasons that we are. They top the 6,000 mark. You know, that's incredible. And I, I remember the first time I was ever in Seattle when I thought, why doesn't everybody live here? I thought, because I love San Francisco. And I thought, this is, this is like San Francisco without the homeless people. Mm-hmm. That's the way it felt to me almost 20 years ago. Right. I know it's not that way now, but uh, welcome to San Francisco when you, when you go to Seattle. I think it's worth repeating a couple of those numbers. San Francisco now has four times the property, property crime uh, or property crime of uh, New York. Four times the property crime. Seattle... Almost four times the property crime. Remember last year when we were at that talk radio convention, spent three days in New York? I think I saw one street person. And I went to a lot of places. Yeah. How many street people do you see in Seattle or San Francisco if you're there for a couple of days for a convention? And the great... It'd be hundreds and hundreds. The great, realistic, solid, beautiful city of, of San Diego is saying, uh-oh, we're on a slope that feels a little slippery, too, heading that direction, and and, and that's correct. Uh, yeah, that's something. F- 
four times the property crime in your unicorn-riding, compassion-over-realism West Coast cities. Uh, We have one more clip. It's a little lengthy, though. I tell you what, why don't we grab a quick break? I love that. This is a questionnaire of police officers. Not those, the brass on camera having to answer to the city council. It's the foot soldiers, if you will, on the street with their perceptions. Should be asked as a question more often. Is where you live getting better or worse? And be honest about that. And I tell you what, I'm going to bring it down to a fundamental psychological analysis Ooh. of why this is happening. And a lot of people are going to hate me for it. Joe is Mr. Rubber Meets the Road. But a lot of you already hate me. Joe's so. Mr. Brass Tax. Exactly. What are you using over there? Aluminum tax? Stay like tuned an idiot. to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the of nation. Of the nation. staying at the lodge at pebble beach and uh our fabulous monterey affiliate thinks it's possibly just so he can listen to the armstrong and getty show Mm. you know i hate to blow my own horn uh coming up a discussion of the hot hot topic of the electoral college and the movement to allow 16 year olds to vote we will be taking those arguments and reducing them to the pulp that they are well, it's phony. You're being led by the nose like a pig. Is it phony? It's phony. We'll discuss. It's phony. We yeah, have discussed. I hope it's phony. Well, the powerful people making the argument, they're phonies. A lot of people honestly believe this stuff and, and certainly will treat you with respect. But the politicians are phonies. So we've been diving into this absolutely brilliant hour-long documentary from uh, Como, K-O-M-O uh, News in Seattle called Seattle is Dying. I'm surprised that this exists, having heard a little bit of it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an edgy thing to do. It is absolutely against the grain. So, I mean, it, it's, it's I, I tire of the expression, the elephant in the room, but it's the elephant in the room mm-hmm. for a lot of cities, especially on the West Coast, that just nobody at the high levels wants to discuss in any real way. It's always just about the compassion and more this and more that. Program-wise. Right, right. Uh, One more clip and then a little uh, psychoanalysis. We put out some generic questionnaires, which were filled out by completely anonymous police officers. Their responses are eye-opening, frightening, and at times sad. One officer wrote simply, Yes, I am frustrated because I'm a law enforcement officer that is told not to enforce the law. Another wrote, It's simple. Start keeping criminals in jail. Judges need to stop giving them ridiculously low sentences, and prosecutors need to stop accepting cheesy plea deals and actually lock people up when they commit a crime. That's all it would take to drastically lower Seattle's crime rate. Another officer said, People come here because it's called free addle, and they believe if they come here they will get free food, free medical treatment, free mental health treatment, a free tent, free clothes, and will be free of prosecution for just about everything. And they're right. It didn't used to be that way. Law enforcement officers used to be able to enforce the laws. 
This officer continues, In the last five years, there has been a culture shift and it started with the legislature decriminalizing felonies and dumping convicts onto the streets. And then there is this. An officer says, Even if quality warrant arrests are made, the judicial system sees fit to let them out of jail within a couple of days, often the next day. Why are we risking our lives to take felony-level fugitives into custody if they're just going to be released? Prosecutor's office and judges alike seem to be drinking all the Kool-Aid, causing a huge disconnect and a broken system with absolutely no teeth. Well, wow. I've, I've experienced that myself also. If the guy that, that was screaming, I'm going to kill and rape you to my children, if I wasn't on the radio and had talked about that, I think he would have just gotten out the next day. Right. And been, and been bumping around. And now he's in jail for a significant length of time because he's a very dangerous person. Right. But who's he hurt many people. Over time and been let out, just like that explanation right there talks about it. Well, that point about cops going into an incredibly risky, dangerous situation, apprehending a felon and the rest of it, and then for what? So they spend a day and a half right. in jail? Why would they risk their lives? Well, on the first part about that, free addle. A lot yeah. of your, a lot of cities have this problem, and, and, and it's a question that needs to be addressed. Okay, you're offering more free stuff. We're just ending up with more homeless people and a lower quality of life for the tax-paying citizens that live here. That, it's not working. Well, and listen, you've and, got And the to, answer is always more programs. Right, right. You've got to understand that there are plenty of... Truly pathetic homeless people who need help. There are also huge numbers of junkies, idiots, losers, just scum, just people with no character. And you have to differentiate between those two groups. If you spread out free stuff to just everybody, including the junkies and the losers and the idiots, you're just going to get more and more and more of them. If you're just tuning in in the last segment, this documentary pointed out that San Francisco has quadrupled the property crime rate of... New York City, Seattle, three and a half times the property crime rate, um, and and it's you know double triple L.A.'s crime rate. So New York is not unique. Um, absolutely astonishing levels of ugliness being permitted, and here's here's why, and this is why America needs conservatives and progressives. Just as I believe most homes are much better off with a dad and a mom. And, and, and a person, a human being needs both compassion and discipline. I don't care if you're running a city, if you're raising a child, if you're training a dog, if you're governing yourself, you need to have compassion. You need to have the soft qualities, but you need to have discipline. And you have to say enough is enough at times. And these are cities. Seattle, San Francisco, um, increasingly San Diego, uh, you know, uh, and there are quite a few. Portland is heading, Portland is heading in this direction at 100 miles per hour, and it's another wonderful, wonderful city. Um, if, if all you have is compassion and you lack discipline, you end up with an untenable situation where there are no rules, there is chaos, there is ugliness, there is pain. And listen, you know, as Winston Churchill famously said, if you're 20 and not a liberal, you have no heart. And if you're 40 and not conservative, you have no brain. We absolutely need compassion. But if you give away discipline, you're looking for disaster. And I think a lot of progressive people don't are not comfortable with doing those things that make you feel bad, but they have to be done. 
whether it's punishing a child or denying them dessert or telling them, no, you have to do your homework. I'm not having to do it. That, that hurts your heart when you do it as a parent. But parents who can't do that fail, and they fail their children. Here's a Leo. It doesn't matter from where because I'm sure it's the same in a whole bunch of different places. I arrested one homeless guy 11 times in four to five months for trespassing, camping at the same bank. Arrested for drugs, indecent exposure, violent crimes, trespassing, much more. And that was just my shift. 11 times, same person, four to five. Just kept going back. So what's the point, obviously? You ever seen one of those parents, Jimmy, stop it. Jimmy, stop it, or or you're going to get it. Jimmy, stop it. Jimmy learns in the blink of an eye. He doesn't have to stop it because his parents not going to do anything. Same here. Same with this situation. All compassion and no discipline equals chaos, ugliness, and pain. Sorry, it's just true. And and listen, all discipline and no compassion yields a nightmare as well. Uh, we talked about snowplow parents yesterday. The increasing phenomenon of parents who not only hover above their children like helicopters, but they try to remove all impediments to their child. They're occasionally referred to as lawnmower parents as well. With the amazing examples of parents who call their kids as adults to make sure they're up in time to make it to class as a 21-year-old in college. Right. Or to make it to work or what have you. Oh, my God. A lot of great responses. Got this. Uh, you know what? I'll say it's anonymous. Um, uh, here in New Jersey, they also call snowplow parents lawnmower parents, uh, lawnmower parents, making an obstacle-free path ahead. Uh, my husband is a veep at a large company. I'm going to keep it vague. Um, as a rule, he does not hire from the Ivy League for this exact problem. The last Ivy League candidate was in his early twenties. Um, that, that math doesn't work. He had to be in his mid-20s. But anyway, and I'll explain why. The father felt my husband was taking too long to decide on his son and called to see about the holdup. He told him he could not hire him because now I'll have to deal with your son and you. See the problem? You're not helping him. The East Coast is insane. Uh, blah, blah, blah. So then she wrote back and pointed out the guy in question was an MD. He'd had eight years of college and four years of residency, and his daddy was still calling around to say, "What's the deal with the interview process here?" Whew. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Who the, would be who? Who else would be horrified if their mom or dad called their boss? Oh, oh my God! My wife is a teacher at a highly ranked uh, San Francisco South Bay Public High School. Every day in the office, there are dozens of fast food lunches that the parents bring in for their kids. Heaven forbid the kids should eat from the cafeteria or brown baget. I say, let them go hungry for a day. Builds fortitude and appreciation for calories. <laughs> That's funny, <laughs> Ted. Uh, KSTVH keeps slinging the verbal hash. Uh, loved your conversation about snowplow parents, writes uh, Chris from Michigan. I'm 37 years old. About 11 years ago, I had a 20-year-old intern working for me. At one point, I asked them, uh, all the interns, to drive to an event we were doing. This 20-year-old's dad was not happy with them driving for this event. Instead of the two of them working it out and the intern coming to me as an adult, having an adult conversation about it, they came and told me their dad wanted to call me and talk to me about it. I told him, you're an adult. I don't answer to your dad. You two work it out, and you come and tell me what you feel comfortable with doing as an adult. I will not speak to your dad. Ever since then, I've noticed this trend growing, but have reflected it to others who work with college-age kids and received universal agreement that this is now a thing. Uh, thanks for continuing to talk about things very few people in the popular media want to talk about and name honestly. You're welcome.
I didn't know this was happening. You learn something every day. I didn't know there was a parent in America who was helping their 20-something get out of bed on time for work. Yeah, isn't that something? But it's not. there is one, and it's fairly common. Steve from Chico, California. One of the issues, uh, oh, it's confessions of a snowplow parent. One of the issues is how easy it is to get information on your child that was not available in the past. Now I can check my child's grades every day. No need to wait for a progress report or a report card. I can track their location at any time. I can get a list of everything they watch on YouTube and Netflix. I can track the number of steps they have each day. You know what? That is a temptation for parents. God, God, I, I, I don't know what it's like to have a grown-up kid, but I've got to, uh, I've got to find a way to not do that. It sounds miserable to me on multiple levels. It's terrible for the kid, and it's terrible for me. I don't want to live my whole life oh, no, worrying no about kidding. the micromanagement of another adult's life. Right. What a horrible fate. Oh, it's terrible. Listen, those of us, and there are quite a few of us, who have kids who have certain special needs, um, you don't want that. You want them to be independent. Of course, if I have to tell you that, there's a problem. I love this, though. Steve wrote, I'm an assistant scoutmaster in Boy Scouts, and as adult leaders, we try to f- provide a safe place to fail. That's in quotes. We're going to let them fail, not to the point of someone getting hurt, but one of the great things about Boy Scouts is it is boy-led. The boys plan the camp out, from the location to food and gear. We've had campouts where the boys plan to have canned chili for dinner, but didn't bring a can opener. We've had campouts awesome. with, without enough tents, no gas for the stove, flashlights without batteries, etc. That's fantastic. And the boys figure We're it out. We're all eaten by bears. As, ad- <laughs> <laughs> As adult leaders, we tell the boys to figure it out. Needless to say, they haven't forgotten a cam- can opener on the camp out since. That's that precisely the point. <laughs> Shut up. This is that the is key. Awesome. It is awesome. You forget the can opener once. And not, and it's not just about can openers. For those of you Sometimes incapable, you need a bottle of cr- opener. It, it, <laughs> you always, it, although I've often said on the golf course, you got a beer. Turns out to be a bottle beer, and somebody would go, oh, "We don't have a bottle opener." I you say, child, any man amateurs. who can't get into a beer doesn't deserve that beer. Doesn't want it bad enough. Anyway, it's not about can openers. <laughs> the kid realizes, okay, we need to systematically go through what we're going to need and make sure we have it. We don't want to repeat of the can opener thing. And that applies then to every bit of preparation. That is what you are stealing from your child if you snowplow for them. Boy, in a lesson, that would change their lives. Exactly. That's what childhood is. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Let me ask you something. What if Seattle is dying and we don't even know it? This story is about a seething, simmering anger that is now boiling over into outrage. It is about people who have felt compassion, yes, but who no longer feel safe, no longer feel like they are heard, no longer feel protected. It is about lost souls who wander our streets, untethered to home or family or reality, chasing a drug which in turn chases them. It is about the damage they inflict on themselves to be sure, but also on the fabric of this place where we live. This story is about a beautiful jewel that has been violated and a crisis of faith amongst a generation of Seattleites falling out of love with their home. There is another part of this story too. It's about a solution, an idea, 
for a city that has run out of them. And I ask again, what if Seattle is dying and we don't even know it? I drive my uh, 12-year-old's carpool through Yesler uh, when we do carpool, and it's a good talking point about, you know, what they're seeing, what we can do to help, you know, how we can make a difference. And honestly, at this point, I don't have a good answer for how we can make a difference. In the last five to 10 years, it's not the place that I grew up in, and it's been really sad. Matt Campbell lives and works in Seattle. He's raising a family, and like many others, He's mad. It's, uh, it's gotten to a point where I'm embarrassed of it. I, I don't want to have my friends and family come here anymore. People didn't used to use the word embarrassing about Seattle, but if you listen closely, you'll hear it a lot now. You know, it, it's embarrassing. It, this, is, this is one of the most beautiful regions in the entire world, and right now, with lack of a better word, it looks like and it's embarrassing. This is Merdad Derek Shande. He runs an upholstery shop in Ballard near the Burke Gilman Trail. See if you can't feel his frustration. This is just this, this is just a bunch of. This is not right. Out his window, he looks at this. Oh, they're human beings. Yes, I'm a human being too. Customers coming to his shop see the same thing. I have known cops from Compton, Watts, Salt Central. They have some power in their hand. Here you see a bunch of twinkle toes running around here. What the heck? Because they run the city like that. They're having problems. They're having problems. They're not having enough authority. There were fires set outside his shop this past summer. And Mr. Derek Shande does not blame police. He believes their power has been stripped away. The city mayor doesn't give the cops authority. That's the problem. We need somebody with some weights and tell them, it's not legal living on the sidewalk. It's city ordinance. It's not legal living here. Why can't we enforce the law? No Robert's rule. Last May 2nd at a town hall meeting in Ballard, simmering anger boiled over into all out rage. So why do we see so many people living outdoors? Will you manage these camps and will you enforce the law? There has evolved a profound disconnect and rarely has it been more vividly laid out than in this exchange. If property crime is committed, violence is committed, you need to call 911 and the police... You've lost all credibility when you say... You said two words. You said, call 911. Do you understand that the police have told us to vote you all out so that they can do their jobs? And you're telling us to call 911? You're smiling. You think it's funny? You think it's funny the way we're living? The way we're living in beautiful Seattle, people are angry, furious about the way we are living. Let's look for a moment at property crimes for the 20 biggest cities in the country. New York City in 2017 had 1,448 property crimes per 100,000 residents. 
Los Angeles was just over 2,500, Chicago, 3,263, and look at Seattle, 5,258. The only major city with the worst number is San Francisco, which is dealing with the same problems for the same reasons that we are. They top the 6,000 mark. It's not your imagination. The crime here, the burglaries, the theft, the stealing of cars is worse than in other big cities. And in most cases, it's way worse. And then you walk down the street and you see a wretched soul like this, consumed by demons. Maybe madness, maybe drugs, maybe both. This is what suffering looks like. This is pain. Ranting and raving, screaming silently, coming completely unraveled before our eyes. And then tomorrow, he'll wake up and relive the nightmare all over again. Starving, eating trash from a garbage can. Look at the people walk by. Of course they're not shocked. How could they be? They see it every day. How can this be who we are? How can this be what we allow? How did the word compassion get twisted into this sickening reality? The Puget Sound Business Journal estimates that Seattle and its outlying areas spend $1 billion addressing and responding to the homeless situation every year. And they say that number is almost certainly underestimated. Nonprofits, city and county budgets, police calls to homeless camps, hospital services, building tiny houses, drug treatment and outreach. Picking up needles, clearing out camps, garbage details, chain link fencing, and the more money we throw at the problem, the worse it gets. But of course, what is happening in King County and on the streets of Seattle isn't about dollars, it's about human lives. How can this be the right thing to do? How can watching human beings live and die in filth and degradation and madness be right? The cost isn't a billion dollars a year. The cost is quality of life. The cost is people not wanting to take their families downtown anymore. Families not feeling safe in their own neighborhoods. The cost is people no longer feeling like they are hurt, no longer feeling protected. The cost is people dying in the streets and the rest of us getting used to seeing it, numb to the suffering. The cost is incalculable. How did we get to this point? This is a list of familiar faces, repeat offenders, people who break the laws, get caught, get released, and break the laws again and again and again. There are a hundred names on the list. Scott Lindsay is the man who dived into public records and researched the list. If we take somebody into the jail, don't give them meaningful help, and then put them right back out on the streets, we know they're going to commit the same crimes in the same places. And our public records, our criminal justice records, really show that that's exactly what's happening. Look at the sheer volume of criminal cases. Calvin A, 68 criminal cases since 2002, repeated random assaults on random individuals. Drainan B, 54 criminal cases since 2016. Michelle C, 72 cases since 2000. And the list goes on and on. Seattle's mayor says this. It is wrong to conflate homelessness with a rise in crime. For at least 100 people, it would at the very least appear to be a factor. Of the 100 that you looked at, what 
percentage of them were homeless? Yeah, from our criminal justice records, 100% had indicators that they were currently homeless. And what percent showed signs of addiction? Yeah, 100% also showed signs of a substance use disorder. And what percent uh, were mentally ill? Yeah, a little less than half had been evaluated by the courts formally for uh, mental health conditions, serious, severe mental health conditions. On average, the people on the list had 36 criminal cases each in the state of Washington and seven jail bookings in the last year. What this report also shows is that the police are working hard. They're making contacts, they're making arrests for criminal behaviors of, again, the same people in the same places over and over and over. What I think we need to focus on is what is our criminal justice system doing to support those police officers? The 100 names had between them more than 3,600 criminal cases. For the most part, few have done serious time. They are out in our communities, walking our streets. The drain on the system, the drain on resources and manpower is incalculable. The fact that this system could go on with, in effect, a 100% failure rate for so long without anybody raising questions, without city council hosting hearings, without any action being taken, is something that it's hard for me to explain. Richard Padden is 55 years old. Born and raised in Seattle, he works for the county. He looks around at Seattle's post-apocalyptic landscape and is amazed. But this is, this border's on insane. I mean, we're allowing ourselves to participate in an insane practice that, that is affording people. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Richard started a Facebook page called Seattle Looks Like Shit. It's not meant to be funny. It's meant to be sad. Pictures speak for themselves. Uh, I started grabbing a few photographs in the area, posting those, and and the, the, the name of the site, as I drive around, look, I just say to myself, Seattle looks like shit. We're fed up with it. I was fed up with it, that's why I started the page. Day after day, one after another, the pictures on the page from every corner of the Emerald City paint a picture of rot and filth that is being allowed to fester on the streets and in the lots and under the overpasses of a once proud city. It, it looks like a third world. It looks, you know, junkyardish. I'm not heartless, uh, I, but I don't see I don't see that what we're doing now is helping anybody, and it hasn't gotten better. Seattle police are afraid to speak out. For two years, we've tried to get cops to talk about what they see every day, about what's really happening on the streets and behind the scenes. More than once, the word terrified was used. Cops are terrified of losing their jobs and pensions, terrified of retaliation. And so we put out some generic questionnaires, which were filled out by completely anonymous police officers. Their responses are eye-opening, frightening, and at times sad. One officer wrote simply, Yes, I am frustrated because I'm a law enforcement officer that is told not to enforce the law. Another wrote, it's simple. 
start keeping criminals in jail. Judges need to stop giving them ridiculously low sentences, and prosecutors need to stop accepting cheesy plea deals and actually lock people up when they commit a crime. That's all it would take to drastically lower Seattle's crime rate. Another officer said, people come here because it's called free Seattle, and they believe if they come here they will get free food, free medical treatment, free mental health treatment, a free tent, free clothes, and will be free of prosecution for just about everything. And they're right. It didn't used to be that way. Law enforcement officers used to be able to enforce the laws. This officer continues, in the last five years, there has been a culture shift and it started with the legislature decriminalizing felonies and dumping convicts onto the streets. And then there is this, an officer says, even if quality warrant arrests are made, the judicial system sees fit to let them out of jail within a couple of days, often the next day. Why are we risking our lives to take felony level fugitives into custody if they're just going to be released? prosecutor's office and judges alike seem to be drinking all the Kool-Aid, causing a huge disconnect and a broken system with absolutely no teeth. That is Travis Berge stretching out before we interviewed him. He came from Reno four years ago. He's a musician, a big personality, and he has problems. You're a user, right? What, what's, your, um, what's your drug of choice? Um, I use methamphetamines. Yeah. And I try to at least use it once a day. But I, I don't really consider myself a, a drug abuser. The shit is amazing. You like the math. I love it. Remember that list of familiar faces? Travis is on it. 34 criminal cases in four years. Things like assault, attempted rape, trespassing. You're on a list, you know. Nice. There's a list of the of the 100. <laughs> they came out with the 100 frequent flyers, really? friendly faces of everything, of all the entire. Wh which one am I? Which number on the list? Yeah. Oh, you're up there. Nice. You're up there. I was just saying, like I've definitely been the most in Seattle, Darren. Travis, put the bike down, Travis. This is body cam footage Travis. of an incident on First and Pike a little more than a year ago. Travis. Travis, hey, come on, Travis. Travis, hey, you Travis, put the bike down. It started with property destruction and escalated into assaulting police officers. A bunch of cops were deployed. Stand up so we can get out of here. Bergie spit on them. Don't spit. Them. Hey, no biting. Don't bite yourself either. Stand up, Travis. We're going to the gurney. Here's the gurney. It lasted hours. Well, I'm actually not even high right now. Travis is outrageously unapologetic about his life and his world. He could care less about yours. Do you steal for your habit? I actually just started stealing last Monday. I started stealing, and um, F oh my God, dude. That was one of the hardest sacrifices is to like do unrighteous things in front of my dudes. Travis, just relax. Travis, do you want to smoke? Travis, you want to smoke or a candy bar? Oh! But um... Will you continue to do that? Oh, I'm having a blast now. It is so much fun. What, what should the system do with a guy like you? Um, I think that this system has, has done uh, what any viable um, legitimate system would. 
and they've really like exalted me uh, and like shown uh, deference and, and love towards me. Back the f up! I want to see you pick it up with your mouth. Remember when you caught it with your toes? And like, I don't feel like I'll ever be arrested again. I haven't been in jail for like a year and three months or so, you know? So a change like that, responding to a uh, big change, definitely shows that uh, I have conquered the criminal justice system. Want to know the sad part, the truly frustrating part? He's probably right. There was a police officer named Todd Wiebke. He prided himself on getting his boots dirty, on meeting the people on the fringes, in the camps. He tried to find common ground as human beings, and he tried to police. He wrote a blog for a long time, first-person musings about patrolling what happens in the dark shadows of West Seattle. Not long ago, he wrote this. This week I dealt with crisis, with narcotics, with heartache, and with liars. Sometimes all at once, sometimes one at a time. I am helpless to unlock the doors when dealing with a person trapped in a horror inside of their own mind. Lord, I try, but I am a limited man with just a little skill. I still love coming to work. We have an awesome city with the ability to adapt and overcome. The only way to lose is to not try. We are trying to solve this crisis and we will not lose. And then one day this past October, Todd Wiebke was told by one superior to impound an RV and clean up the spot. And when he did it, another superior scolded him for doing so because of new protocol. He had a bellyful and he walked into HR and he quit, retired, just like that. I feel like I abandoned the, the ship, that I walked away, that, and, and I did because I couldn't do it anymore. It was just the bureaucracy built up to the point where I felt like I was no longer necessary as a police officer, that the system had a different idea of how they wanted to handle it, and I was an appendix. I needed to be gone, so I, I'm gone. Ask anyone. They'll tell you this was a good cop, the kind we want out there, the kind we need. But I will tell you that, that there is no morale. Um, there's a love for the job. He says the drugs, the camps, the theft, the rot, and the disgrace of it all don't have to destroy Seattle they're being allowed to. Everybody's trying to do the right thing. It's just coming out wrong. Listen to these next words carefully. Let them sink in. You know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that the only thing I can equate it to is we're running a concentration camp without barbed wire, up to and including the medical experiment of poisoning these people with drugs. I, I don't know how else to put it, and it's infuriating. Every camp I walked into, there was a weapon multiple weapons. I found modified weapons. I was constantly on the side of the road talking to people that were swinging machetes, holding an axe, armed with knives. Our city has even gone so far as to say, well, this much of, a, of, of narcotics on your person's okay. Three grams. Yeah. Hey, that's okay. Um, so that's user quantity. So, you know, when you start, you know, that process and people feel secure and, and, and okay having their drugs on them, What's to stop them from doing it? How do you, now you're pretty much okaying narcotics and the same officers that used to go out there and arrest them are now rendered impotent and can't do anything about it. And it's just a matter of, of political will on the part of our city to go out there and say, hey, you can't park your motor home in this driveway with no engine in it, with all this filth around it. Uh, you can't do it. 
it's wrong and stop them. I got to say, man, this is really nice. Oh, I am in heaven. He's in Hobart uh, now. In he bought a horse ranch and shares it with his family and these friends. So this is Griff here, the white guy. All right, they're a little nervous of the camera. So horses are amazing. They, they are 900-pound chickens. <laughs> and before we left this good cop, who is now an ex-cop, there was one more question for him. And if you live in the city that Todd Wiebke used to patrol, if the people you love and take care of are here with you, trying to live a good life, then his answer should send shivers down your spine. Let me ask you this. Knowing what you know, having seen what you've seen, uh, if you had a young family, would you raise them in Seattle right now? Absolutely not. <laughs> Even, no. No. There is a cemetery in Seattle, a Jewish cemetery. Campers and RVs park next to it and stay. This man, Ari Hoffman. This shouldn't be happening in civilized society. Says the cemetery has been violated repeatedly. Prostitutes were working the woods. Drug addicts were working the woods. Our groundskeepers come in on Monday morning and they find everything from a weekend of fun, which is needles in the ground, crystal meth on the tombstones, other drugs, garbage. They leave their garbage outside. They see feces on the tombstones. That's left over from whatever happened the night before. By the way, the name of the cemetery is Beaker Holim. It means helping those who are sick. You're mad, aren't you? I'm furious. I'm beyond furious. This has pushed me to a whole new limit. Let's get the sandbags off this one and we're going to pull the whole thing forward. Ari has a company that sets up bouncy houses at concerts and festivals. He says it's not just the Jewish cemetery that's being desecrated, it's everywhere. And I used to say, this place is great because the streets are so clean, it's so beautiful. You walk down the streets now, they smell like urine. The cemeteries are being desecrated. People can't go to parks with their kids because there's needles everywhere. My office, bullets come flying through the windows at us. It's out of control, it's nonstop, and this, we, we deserve better. And it's all preventable, it's all avoidable, it's all fixable, it didn't have to get like this. I wish I had faith in my government, but after two meetings with council members and nothing's changed, I don't really expect anything to change. We're going to have to do this ourselves. Yeah, Thanks for coming down, guys. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Appreciate it. A couple of months after that interview was done, Ari Hoffman, who was thrust into the spotlight because he voiced his outrage, who had no political aspirations of any kind, and who was urged by friends and frustrated citizens, decided to run for city council. And he has no future political aspirations beyond the council. The other day he said, I want to fix Seattle and then go back to work. A report received is when police file a report of a case requesting that the city attorney's office file charges on behalf of the city. Back in 2006, for every 100 reports received, 25 of them didn't get filed. How times have changed. In 2016, the latest data we have, for every 100 police reports, 46 of them, almost twice as many, didn't get filed. Nothing happened at all. They were completely ignored. Of the remaining 54 of the original 100, one-third of them were then outright dismissed, thrown out. Another third were listed as other, with no resolution. So only 18 of the original 100 reports filed by police actually result in convictions. 18. And of those 18 convictions after plea deals and lenient sentences, very few cases end up with anyone really being held accountable. Those are 2016 numbers. 
we have no reason to believe the trends haven't continued since then. The real homeless you don't see. Out-of-work truckers or construction workers who've run into bad luck don't live like this, in tents on mud patches. This is something different. This is drugs, heroin, meth. Citizens know it. Can we at least acknowledge the elephant in the room that this is also a drug problem? I've only heard it being mentioned as a housing problem. This is a drug problem. The quote-unquote homeless know it too. I have not met anyone else on the street who's not in some phase of addiction. I mean, of use, of serious use. And I think that that's the starting point. You just have to address that. You have to figure that out. So I, I wanted to make sure I got that correct. I would say 100% of the people that I have met out here are in some level of addiction. 100%? 100%. Yeah. Every single person? Every single person I've met out of here. But listen closely. We constantly refer to it as a homeless crisis, not a drug crisis. The fractured, siloed approach of homelessness in our region. To help combat the homelessness epidemic. And the homelessness crisis. We have a crisis around housing and homelessness. If we won't even name the thing that is destroying Seattle, what hope do we have of fixing it? Matt Markovich is a reporter for Como. He's out in the camps amongst the homeless and the addicted almost every day. Yeah, that's the woman that I've been talking with right over there. She's uh, running, they're trying to make this a park. And she's leading the spearheaded effort, that woman that lives right there. Is that right? What will it take for you to get off the street? Matt is responsible for Como's Project Seattle Stories. His is a unique perspective, a frequent witness to the underbelly of the Emerald City with the eye of a reporter. It's a miserable life. It really is. You have no place to go to the bathroom. Uh, fires are prohibited in most places. Uh, your biggest thing is theft. Everybody complains about theft. There's no safe spot here at all. He's seen it all. The rats, the human waste, the cold, the torment. You wouldn't wish this life on your worst enemy. No. Right? No. But it's remarkable that people are choosing this. Even though you hear the statistics from the city that, oh, people don't want to do this, that they're, it's miserable, there's a compassion for people. The people you see, and I, I see in camps, many of them are choosing to stay this way because of all the drug habits they have. Or That's all habits. driven by the drugs. Yes. Uh, almost the drugs drives, drives everything we see here, right? I would pretty much say that. Uh, substance abuse, heroin, meth, um, even marijuana to some extent, is the driving factor why they stay out here. You, you've, you've sat down with the city attorney. Mm -hmm. You've asked him about repeat offenders who get arrested 60, 70 times. They're thrown back on the streets. What, what does he say? You can't, um, you, you, you can't arrest your way out of this problem. That's a firm belief of his. Why is the question, should we hammer him now, when the entire criminal record that you're citing is proof that what we've been doing hasn't worked? Uh, do you ever hear about actual meaningful intervention taking place? Um, I really haven't. I can't say oh, one case I've been covering for the last year and a half that I know of somebody who's gotten treatment and has gotten off the streets. Police say that on July 20th of 2017, this man, Louis Arby III, 41 years old, 
removed the screen from a woman's window at an assisted living facility in SeaTac and crawled in. The woman inside was brutalized for an hour. She was raped and beaten and choked and robbed. Police say Louis Arby also urinated on the floor. Afterwards, police say he left through the same window he'd entered through. The victim was treated for bleeding on the brain, a broken nose, and other injuries. She was 71 years old. It was a shocking and disturbing crime, but perhaps we shouldn't have been all that surprised. Just four days before the rape, just 96 hours before police say he scarred one woman's life forever, Louis Arby III was arrested here, sitting next to the fountain, right outside the King County Courthouse. Police say he was selling methamphetamine. That's him in the back of the squad car after the arrest. He was booked and then released almost immediately. Our criminal justice system decided that he shouldn't spend even 24 hours in jail. But even a brief look at his record would have shown that Louis Arby had come from California, where he'd spent 19 years in prison for kidnapping, robbery, and carjacking. And had prosecutors looked a little more closely, they'd have known that Arby was the only suspect in a case three months prior in which a woman was taken hostage, forcibly shot full of drugs, and viciously raped and beaten for 15 hours. The King County Prosecutor's Office says, in this case we had information that he had a 1995 California conviction for kidnap to commit robbery and other offenses. The prosecutors assigned to the investigation had no knowledge of other pending investigation. And so we are left with a question. How is it that a man is arrested in front of a courthouse in possession of a deadly drug that destroys lives? How is it that this man who has a long history of violence doesn't even spend 24 hours in jail? How is it that he is sent right back onto the streets? One Seattle police officer told us synonymously, I would say all of the people living in sidewalk tents, doorways, and encampments suffer from drug addiction, or more rarely, a serious debilitating mental illness. Another officer put it this way, intervention of some sort has to be made on the people who were involved. If there is no intervention, there's no solution. It's that simple. This officer continues, I used to be proud of the hard work I did and actually thought I was doing something important. I took pride in working hard and making good arrests while treating everyone with the respect they deserved. Now it's just about trading hours for dollars and it's frustrating to me knowing I am becoming more apathetic and caring less about doing a good job. Another cop said, homelessness and drug use have become such politically charged issues, politically charged in that the city, including SPD administration, have ceased to be interested in policing this population. In a misguided attempt to help this population, the city has allowed the streets to be essentially taken over. The city is falling apart and becoming more unsafe due to politics surrounding low-level criminal activity and homelessness. We don't want to screw over the homeless population. We just want the ability to police them. And yet another officer told us this. Drug dealers selling crack, meth, and heroin are evil people preying on the weakest part of society and belong in prison. We arrest them and nothing happens to them. They are back out on the street immediately. We need to acknowledge the disregard for human life inherent in selling life-ending drugs and lock the dealers up for serious time. Campers show up, they eventually get moved, they show up again. 
they set up where they please, in front of tourists, next to businesses, it doesn't matter. And they know that a lack of political will or an overwhelming of resources or indifference disguised as compassion will allow them to stay. And don't think for a moment that the visitors to our city don't notice. Well, it's kind of surprising. I don't know why the city would let that happen. I mean, this is your touristy spot, you know what I mean? This family is from Tennessee. They seem genuinely confused. I just don't understand. Isn't it trespassing? Uh, you know what I'm saying? So, so how can they, they stay there? Why does the city put up with it? Why do you, I mean, that's a public spot. Why does somebody get to stay there? I don't understand that. I, I would be arrested, I thought, in my town if I, I did that. I mean, right by our parking garage, it's, there's just trash. and Oh, the smell was awful. Oh, my God, the smell is horrible in any stairwell you go into around yeah. here. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Do you think they'll be back to visit again? In the last three years, you know, it just has gone downhill. Steve Danishek has spent his whole life in Seattle. He says when misdemeanors stopped being enforced, it was the beginning of the end. And at that point, everyone got the message. It's a free-for-all down here. It's the Wild West. No laws apply. Do whatever you want. I could go down here and pee on the street or crap over there or smoke a joint. I, I have no one's going to get arrested for doing that because they're not doing that. They're not arresting anyone. If I was a city council member, I might say, well, well we're overwhelmed. We've got this homeless epidemic. No, 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 no. Uh, we, the city, the city council is not overwhelmed by anything. The city council are idiots. They know that there are solutions out there. They simply have turned their back on the solutions. We don't sweat the small stuff anymore in Seattle. Small acts of incivility are ignored, and here's why. If someone, say, urinates in front of the Nordstrom store, they used to be issued a civil infraction, a $27 fine. It used to be that a civility charge would become a criminal charge if you didn't pay the fine. But the city attorney's office stopped filing civility cases. They are dropped now, almost without exception. Urinating or defecating in public, sleeping in parks, obstructing sidewalks, failure to pay infractions. All of it will get you nothing. And so the police have stopped issuing the tickets altogether. What's the use? Small acts of incivility, things that cumulatively affect all of us, no longer have any consequences in Seattle. The businesses of our city, big and small, are fit to be tied. Bob Donegan is the president of Ivers. The conditions being allowed around our businesses are one thing. There's needles and rats and garbage and feces. It's not acceptable in a major urban city to have those kind of problems where there are lots of people. But then, with online shopping already threatening their existence, along came a horde of shoplifters stealing every day to feed their addiction. Yeah, I would love to hear what the total is of if all the main the business in the downtown car would put their loss of theft. Millions and millions of dollars. A year, just kind of, if they could compile that stat, we would all just probably drop dead if we heard what the total was. One of the officers who replied to the questionnaire we sent out agreed. The amount of money lost due to thefts downtown, he said, is staggering. Unfortunately, the businesses take the hit, and the person caught stealing rarely has to deal with any consequences. Denise Moraguchi is the CEO of Uwajimaya, the grocery shopping hub of the International District. The system's broken, and I think that's creating the boldness. 
Uwajimaya called 911 at least 599 times over a 19-month stretch. They're bold when they get caught. They kind of just, you know, they don't really care and, and they um, oftentimes we, you know, we'll put in a police report and they'll get a trespassing notification, but then they'll just walk right back in and they, and it's kind of like, oh, well, you have this trespassing. Okay, what are you going to do? Call the police? And if you're wondering why that boldness she talks about exists, of those 599 reports of shoplifting at her store in a 19-month stretch, about eight of the cases ended in some form of prosecution, most of those because they also involved assault. It's huge, and it costs these uh, businesses, small mom-and-pop businesses and large retailers alike, it costs them millions and millions of dollars per year. And you know what? The businesses don't like to talk about it themselves because nobody wants to say how much they're losing, but we know it is millions of dollars. Citizens and shop owners had waited for the people running our city to come up with something, a plan. And then one day last May, a group of construction workers got tired of waiting and took action. Coming here for this important no discussion. No head tax! No head tax! No head tax! As you know, I'm also a rank and file member of the no labor movement. Tax. No head tax! No head tax! No head tax! On that day, the tide turned against Seattle's proposed business head tax to pay for homeless services and affordable housing. But if we fight against each other, the bosses win. The city council, which had passed the tax unanimously. You can say exactly what you think, but rather than chanting against each other, let's hear each other out. Was forced to repeal $75 million worth of business taxes. And for a moment in time anyway, it felt as though something had changed. Is this your dream, this shop? Yeah. It's hard leaving. I mean, it's hard emotionally because I've been such a part of the neighborhood here, you know? Karen Dannenberg ran her boutique in Belltown for many years, and then things changed. There was a guy shooting heroin or whatever he was shooting on the sidewalk. I was in flip-flops walking by. There was urine all over the sidewalk, mattresses, a pile of trash that was overflowing and it was appalling. She called the police. She wrote letters. Things only got worse. And I go to Bellevue and it's calm and it's quiet and there's none of this stuff going on. And it's a joy being over there. I, I, I never thought I would say I'd be ready to leave Seattle, but I am. True to her word, she left. Her store is in Bellevue now and it's thriving. Amongst the responses to our questionnaire, one anonymous Seattle police officer said, there has to be some sort of intervention to break the cycle or people will continue to do what they do. The addict won't quit because it has become too easy for them to use and the dealer won't quit as the consequences of getting caught are minimal. Another said, Seattle needs leaders who are willing to stand up for what is right and by doing so will ultimately help those who can't help themselves and hold accountable those who are hiding behind tents. Reading through the responses, two things are crystal clear. The level of frustration and the fact that in spite of it all, 
they still care deeply. One officer said, crack cocaine, heroin, and especially meth use are on the rise. Unless someone contacted for low-level amounts of drug has a warrant, they're not taking to jail. They know this and have no problem using in open air. Drug dealers have caught on and have changed the amount they keep on them. It is currently impossible to combat the open air drug market in the city. That officer was referring to the fact that in King County, three grams of heroin or meth won't get you prosecuted or probably even arrested. It's unofficial policy. It's only the much larger quantities, say 20 grams, that get prosecuted and the dealers and the users know it. Three grams of heroin, by the way, is equal to 30 doses. One officer summed it all up like this. Let's spend the millions of dollars on mandatory inpatient treatment programs instead of making excuses for their addiction and or crimes. The option should be treatment or jail. The cycle has to be intervened on or it will never end. And maybe you're wondering, why didn't they show the positive responses to the police questionnaire? The answer to that is simple. There weren't any. They use deadly drugs, and they sell those drugs for 10 bucks a dose. And over and over, they steal us blind to get the 10 bucks. And they pollute our streets and parks and neighborhoods. And they live in filth and despair like animals. And we allow it, all of it. We used to talk about compassion. And when the madness that is always patiently waiting off in the distance finally moves in and wraps its arms around them, and in the end it always does. The suffering escalates exponentially until the misery is a white-hot pain that never stops, never rests. This man in the downtown core of our city was suffering, in distress. Once he fell down, he couldn't get back on his feet again, so he sat there for a long time. At the exact same time, just across the street, there was another man also apparently in the middle of a drug crisis, staggering out of it, lost in some other world. You can see the same thing on a lot of corners every single day. To leave them alone is a death sentence. Sooner or later they die, on the streets or in tents or in low barrier tiny houses. To leave them alone is to shame ourselves. And that's why they need help. They don't need camps and injection sites and bags of free socks. They need help, the kind that takes courage, the kind that gives them and Seattle a fighting chance. They need intervention. And so the city of Seattle and King County seem to be struggling mightily to find answers. We came all the way to the state of Rhode Island looking for answers, and we may have found some right behind those prison walls. Providence is a medium-sized city in our tiniest state. What they are working on here, while not outwardly revolutionary or mind-boggling at first blush, is a bold step towards saving lives and cities and giving tortured souls who succumb to the hell of heroin a fighting chance. And in Providence is a man who will tell you about the program they have developed. But first, he will tell you his own story. I didn't have to do what I did. I wanted to be something that I couldn't be. I wanted to emulate all the fellas in the neighborhood. 
His name is Michael Manfredi. He used heroin for 35 years. I became addicted at, a very, at the age of 15. I was a full-fledged heroin addict. 15 years old. 15 years old. This is his mugshot from the last time he came to the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. 20 years of his life had been spent locked up. Well. Nothing seemed to work. It was a life reeling out of control. When I got the handcuffs put on me at my house that day, when they kicked my door in, um, I looked at the lady detective and I said, thank you. And she looked at me like I was crazy. She said, they're partner. She said, this guy's not saying anything. She said, I said, you just saved my life. Because if she didn't stop me there, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I would either be dead or I'd be doing life. The question facing Rhode Island is similar to the question facing much of the United States. How do we protect our society while at the same time showing compassion towards those who are sick and struggling? It may be the question of our time. I've wanted this program basically since the day I started. Dr. Jennifer Clark is the head of what is referred uh -huh. to back east as the MAT program, medication assisted treatment. We can't just ignore our way out of this. We can't arrest our way out of this. Um, people are dying and there's something we can do to stop that. It starts out here, really, because the first thing that they do in Rhode Island is enforce their laws. Drug dealers and the people who steal and commit crime to get their drugs eventually end up in this place, the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. It's not a nice place. It's a prison. But inside the walls, something amazing happens. Every day, the inmates who are in the MAT program line up and they take their medicine. There are three opiate blockers that work, methadone, suboxone, and Vivitrol. They are FDA-approved, they get people off heroin, they save lives. Prisoners who enter the program choose which medicine they want to use. Michael Manfredi chose Vivitrol. He remembers when he first started taking it, near the end of his last stint behind bars. And one night I got a call, it was about 6.30, um, come to the front desk, I said, oh no, hey, what do I do now? I know I didn't do nothing wrong, but... They said, go see the nurse. I had tears in my eyes, because I knew it was time for me to get that pill. Really, this is the perfect setting, because there isn't as, there's not as much um, distraction, actually. Linda Hurley is the president of a nonprofit called Kodak. It's been around for 50 years on the outside. The state of Rhode Island hired Kodak to distribute medicine inside the walls of the prison. All three medications you carry on your life, it's no different than if you were utilizing uh, lisinopril or something, I don't know, a blood pressure medication or insulin. You have a family, you have a job, you build your life. Um, it, it, what it does is it stabilizes, it stabilizes us physically so that we can do the emotional work that we need to do to heal from the disease. You know, I started messing around with the pills and everything, and then once I found opiates, that was, that was the end of it, you know? And then... Ray Vincent has been behind bars for three years. He was stealing to support his habit for a while, then he upped the ante to robbery. Maybe if I didn't come in here, I'd probably be dead. So you think getting arrested was a good thing for you? I think it saved my life. Ray takes Suboxone. He knows he may take it for the rest of his life. You sound optimistic, actually. Yeah, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to 
continue to, I don't want to continue to come here the rest of my life. You know, and if this medication is a stepping stone I need, I'll do it. That's the bottom line. Inside the prison, inside the MAT program, the inmates have counselors. There are one-on-one -on -one meetings with recovery coaches and group meetings as well. They hit addiction with every tool they can throw at it. And the recovery coaches come in and meet with anyone who's willing and interested in meeting with them so that they can develop a relationship with them on the inside and then have that relationship sustained on the outside. Kevin Tangway says, I wasn't arrested, I was rescued. And were you stealing to... to yeah, that's, that's my main thing. What I do is I shoplift, I'm a shoplifter. He's been in prison eight of the last 10 years. He's on methadone. We get it at 12 o'clock and we're, we're monitored. Like we get those evaluations, like the, the doctors, the counselors, um, that we stay in touch so that they can know if where I'm at as far as the dose is holding me, keeping me like so that I'm not really feeling that bad. The MAT system is a lifeline and these men are holding on for dear life. I'm not afraid of a lot of things, but I'm, I'm a little concerned about like, I don't want to go back to it. I don't want to go back to it because you don't even know what's real anymore. And I'm just, I'm a little afraid of that, to die alone, you know? I want to kind of try to put things together. My mother is still alive. I want to kind of like make some kind of amends before something happens to one of us, you know? Look at this place. Look at all the buildings, the infrastructure. What if this was a specialized facility where we could use all of our resources and knowledge to fight this thing that is happening? What if it was a place where doctors and counselors and caseworkers were available, along with the treatment drugs that we know work, the ones we know save lives? What if this was a very specific place where sick people learn how to live life again? Job training, therapy, treatment, all of it in one place. It would have to be a place where the patients couldn't simply get up and leave if they wanted because the sickness is such that that doesn't really work. But eventually they would leave and have jobs and families and maybe continue to use methadone, suboxone or Vivitrol for the rest of their lives, the way some people use insulin. What you're looking at is McNeil Island, completely abandoned for the most part. You might call it an answer waiting for the right question. It wouldn't have to be here. It could be somewhere else. But maybe that billion dollars that we spent last year could be spent on a tough, compassionate concept that actually works, that saves lives. As Seattle and the rest of the West Coast wander in the darkness searching for answers, it's important to understand that the genius of what they're doing in Rhode Island isn't just that there is full drug treatment inside the prison walls. The genius is what happens when the inmates leave. Priority number one being how are they gonna continue their medication. The minute someone shows up in a program in the community, they have to be registered in that database. So we know if they're showing up or not. Are the numbers going up? The figure that I saw yesterday was 93% of the people who leave here on MAT are following up in the community. That's amazing. 93%? 93% are following through. Michael Manfredi is one who stuck with the program after he was released. He's alive to talk about it. Would I be where I am today if this program wasn't implemented? No. I wouldn't be here today. Honest to God, I'd be dead. 
This is a Kodak Center. They are sprinkled throughout Rhode Island. There are seven of them in Providence alone. Once you come into the Department of Corrections and are medicated under um, methadone or Suboxone um, or Vivitrol, you become a Kodak patient. You have a patient ID number in our system and our agencies throughout um, Rhode Island are all connected. Former inmates or anyone else in the program show up anytime, yeah. any day. Take home bottles, so those will be filled. And they get their medication. No red tape, no questions asked, no doctor's appointments, no vouchers. They're in the system, they get their meds. It's that simple. Josh Broadfoot overdosed 12 times and somehow survived. He got three years for selling drugs. I'm grateful that I was arrested and taken out of the situation I was in because, I mean, it, it sounds retarded to say I'm grateful I was arrested and I'm taken away from my family, but I might not even be there to ever see my family again if that situation hadn't happened. I might be gone completely on this day. Josh is on methadone. The MAT program, he says, gives him hope. You gotta get out there and do different, but at the same time, you, we have a little bit of help along the way. We have this counseling, we have something that we know is helping us to stay away from opiates and people that care, and so that's a major help. On the outside, those group meetings continue, and so does the counseling that is so very important, up to three times a week. And I changed by becoming someone I didn't want to be. My psychiatrist, my caseworker, my, man, my case manager, and my doctor that prescribes my pills are all in one facility. I don't have to go all over the state of Rhode Island. It's one facility. You know, with all the counseling and, and all the support that I have, it's like, it's a very smooth transition. You know, I don't know how it would be if I wasn't on medication. Because I don't know if somebody, if, if the next day I get out, I, I see a bag of heroin, you know? Somebody I know just sees me on the street, hey, hey, you know, gives me a high five or something, there's a bag of dope in his hand, you know? I don't wanna, it's scary to think about, but that's reality. Ray Vincent got out of prison 19 days after we spoke to him. He's going to school to become a welder. He gets his medicine at a Kodak center every week. It saves lives, so I don't think of it as being soft or compassionate. It is the right thing to do. It is what we're obligated to do as healthcare providers. Um, it's the smart thing to do. Patricia Coyne Fake, who runs the entire correctional facility, knows that one of the ways of measuring success is looking at the death rate for those leaving prison. Because I've seen it work. It work. I mean, when you see the numbers, people who would be dead are not because of this program. Leaving the walls behind is dangerous because addicts who are clean will use the same amount of drugs they used before and then overdose. The rate of that happening is way down in Rhode Island. And what we found was a 65% decrease in mortality for people with a history of incarceration. 65% and the program is still only about three years old. And maybe it's just a coincidence that it's been a group of women who have spearheaded a program that is tough, compassionate, and innovative all at once. Maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not. Michael Manfredi has a job now. He goes to meetings, he's reconnected with his family, he's productive, he's happy, he's alive. My biggest thing is my granddaughter. She's, she melts my, she melts my heart, man. Absolutely, I've never been happier in my life. Why is that? Because I've never lived a productive life like I am today. My life's great, man. I can't, 
I can't thank everybody enough, man, because if it wasn't for this MAT program, Michael wouldn't be here today. I'm proud of myself, proud of my family, and I'm proud of everything I've done. And that means so and, much and, to all of us, and me and the people mm -hmm. who work in the program, mm -hmm. to do this work because yes. you're the reason we do it. What they've done in Rhode Island and in other places can be boiled down to two simple concepts enforcement and intervention. Seattle and King County have retreated away from those things. We've left sick, tortured souls to wander the streets, to rot in filth and die before us. We've turned over our city to those who would steal from us and addict our children. We've turned away from simple concepts that bind together society and keep it safe. Things like enforcement and intervention. A city is a living thing. It has a rhythm and a heartbeat, a kind of soul. It is a collection of ideas that we protect and defend, old ideas and new ones. And over time, the ideas blend into a collective, living, ever-changing dream. And the dream is nothing more and nothing less than a better life for our children. But behind the beauty and the ideals, behind the bridges and the ballparks and the beautiful buildings, the dirty work is the fight. Great dreams and great cities don't survive without a fight. Seattle is dying. Maybe with all the wealth and growth, we became so pleased with ourselves or so busy that we forgot about the hard part. Maybe good people who go to work every day and raise families and pay taxes, the ones who built the city and dreamed the dream, forgot about the dirty work. Maybe we forgot about the fight.